This is The Paul List, daily analysis and critical engagement with comics and culture. I'm Two Ply on Twitter at T-W-O-P-L-A-I. Every day I dialogue with a comic book. My perspective is as a cultural critic, academic, and teacher and preacher. So I always try to be analytical. Sometimes I get a little philosophical. Sometimes I get a little bit spiritual. But since I do analysis of a comic's work each day for 20 minutes, I do get into the details, so I always suggest that you read the work first, whether you buy it from a retailer or get it digitally. Yes, that is a spoiler warning. All right, let's dig deep. Today's Thursday, uh, July 7th, 2016. And um, on Thursdays, we do the Thursday throwback. Um, we're going to talk about Green Arrow celebration of 75 years. Um, and I had mentioned that this would be our book today. Uh, in the extra sode that I did last night about uh, Anthony Johnston and Justin Greenwood's book, The Fuse 19. Just a word about programming, though, before we get into Green Arrow. Um, you know, I have a certain order because I think it's a nice discipline to help me to um, keep my eye, my scope on the broad array of comics. I talk about superheroes multiple days because they have such a large place in the comics landscape. Um, Marvel and DC are so influential, maybe especially at this moment where um, TV shows and films and um, you know children's merchandising and so on have superheroes everywhere. I think they deserve the scrutiny that I give them in having two days of the week devoted uh, to superheroes in this daily podcast. Um, but I also am intentionally really trying to expand the vision, um, definitely from a certain vantage point. Um, my, my positioning you know, as somebody watching mainstream superhero comics, um, I start there, but I also brought an outward to other publishers other places that comics is, exist, um, stretching back into comics history, comics theory, and comics studies. I had thought to do this book as the Thursday throwback, that is the Green Arrow celebration, for a while. Um, you know, I try to look ahead at what I'm going to decide, but there's something else that has jumped forward in the queue for certain reasons, something that I'd wanted to talk about. Um, but it's just become relevant. And so I've decided to make that my Friday find, even though it's probably more properly categorized in the Thursday throwback. I'm going to talk about it tomorrow. So that'll be tomorrow's episode. That book is Nat Turner by Kyle Baker. Um, it was published a while ago, re-released in a number of formats, and I've picked up many of those formats. Uh, it's a really significant comics work, and it's really different from... Um, a lot of uh, traditional comics in certain ways that I think are very important. It's a largely wordless comic, although there's a lot of text. Um, but the text operates differently from, say, the speech balloons and the, um, and the caption boxes of a traditional comic. It's about Nat Turner, the um, uh, slave rebellion leader, um, slave revolutionary leader. And I want to talk about it now. It's jumped forward in the line because of the things happening uh, in the nation, in the news, playing out in social media. And it's one that I've wanted to talk about, but I think its relevance makes it um, move forward in the list. And um, so I'm going to talk tomorrow about Nat Turner, 
by Kyle Baker, um, talk about images of black bodies in these times of uh, police killings and Black Lives Matter. Just a couple of days, the last couple of days that have passed, um, we've seen transpire even more police killings and um, Philando Castile most recently and um, Alton Sterling. Um, the images that are passed around, the videos that are passed around social media that we both are compelled to see and um, often feel the need to turn away from and yet um, there's a burden on, uh, of history to bear witness to. So, um, so I'm going to talk about those. Um, I think I'm going to bring in a little bit of Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me and, uh, and Paul Gilroy's The Black Atlantic to talk about the role of art and double consciousness. Um, I'm going to talk about that as a, an Asian American, um, c conscious to whatever extent I can be, of my status as both somebody who comprehends and absolutely doesn't comprehend what it is to be um, a black person in America today. Um, I don't comprehend it. I don't pretend to. I don't um, imagine that I can. Um, so that'll be tomorrow. But I bring it up today because comprehending that experience is actually somewhat central to the book today. Um, I'm talking about Green Arrow, a celebration of 75 years. Uh, it's a book that, um, you know, I think the timing makes sense. DC has been publishing these celebration of 75 years as an opportunity to reprint the sort of best of stories of a number of heroes as the timing rolls around. You know, so I think it started with Superman, a celebration of 75 years, and we've had all of the characters as the 75 year mark has hit for them. You know, Batman, um, uh, Robin, Catwoman, I think has had one and, you know, sort of uh, Flash, um, Shazam. And so as each has come out, they've collected um, these anthologies, which I think that it's a, it's a noble task. Um, these books are really necessary. They were my gateways, not, not these, but when I was a kid, um, there was a, you know, a run of the best Batman stories ever told and the best Superman stories ever told and so forth. And those were kind of important for my exposure and my formation because there was here a chronological um, catalog of the evolution of a hero, obviously sampled. And um, there's a lot to uh, contend with when you're trying that kind of a sampling um, to say these are the best Batman stories, you know, and it's challenging because you're really picking single issues or maybe a two issue run but you can't show a, a broader story um, moreover in any selection process and any kind of canonization process there's going to be um, exclusions that feel like a cheat to to somebody or some aspect of the character or the history um, you're never going to please every, everybody it's always going to be a sort of a exercise in, in futility to try to capture the best um, and so the idea is just merely saying we're celebrating 75 years, a little less modest of a goal. And uh, that's what they've been doing in this, this series of books. Um, we come now to Green Arrow because it's been 75 years since Green Arrow was created in more fun comics by uh, Mort Weisinger. And, um, and uh, you know, the, the collection works. It's a, it's a collection much like many of these collections. And I think with a character like Green Arrow who has obviously a long and storied history, but not the storied history or not the sort of expansive history that, you know, your uh, Supermans and Batmans have. Um, it, it's a little more within reach to imagine 
getting um, a collection within a book size of some significant samplings of the character's history. Uh, more possible than uh, I think the other characters. And so even though I think there are exclusions in here that, um, you know, I actually understand a lot of them. It would be really hard to put all of Longbow Hunters in here, for instance, um, or to really reflect the significance of the Mike Grell run in here. Um, they do, a, a, I think, a, a decent job of, of, of a broad representation of what Green Arrow has been. And so, um, you know, there's a little bit of, of history in this, uh, in the sections as they divide up the book. They have um, four parts. Is it right? Four parts. Yeah. Uh, the first part being um, uh, the titled The Emerald Archer. Really, the Golden Age um, leading up to the Silver Age. You have here uh, Mort Weisinger and, and George Papp, who was the original artist uh, in Morphon Comics 73, and the invention of a character who you know, Mort Weisinger under an editorial dictate mandate to create more superheroes in the, um, you know, in the breed of your uh, Batman and Superman. And so there's a whole lot about, uh, <laughs> about Green Arrow that sounds suspiciously like Batman, you know, the rich person, uh, no superpowers, uh, you know, the, the human resources that, you know, a regular human has to fight crime and, um, you know, Mort Weisinger has claimed that it wasn't Batman, but but uh, primarily Robin Hood. That was the inspiration, although it's clearly Robin Hood written in a Batman-changed time. Um, and so you have your Golden Age comics. It's great to see Jack Kirby. He did a run in the, in the Golden Age um, in the 40s. Uh, so actually, in the 50s of Green Arrow. And so there's a representation of that. And then there's... Um, uh, his entrance into the Justice League in 1961, written by, of course, Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski um, in Justice League number four, where there's a funny deliberation of should who should we add to this team, to this uh, super team? And, you know, they're all sitting around. And uh, if you've never read the Justice League of this era, there's um, they're starting to collect the um, Silver Age Justice League in Omnibuy and in uh, the collections with those awesome um, Darwin Cook and Michael Cho covers. You should check those out. But... Uh, uh, so if you've never heard the name Snapper Carr, um, I, I'm not going to go into it. That's something you should look at is this, you know, you got like these um, heroes with e enormous powers like John Jones and uh, Superman and uh, Green Lantern. And then you have Snapper Carr, this uh, Casey Kasem looking young dude who's, uh, what are you doing here? Uh, <laughs> and I think there's some, like, to some extent, a little bit of Green Arrow. What are you doing here? But I think by that point, and in this story, it takes pains to, to you know, Dis to justify why um, you would have among people who can control the seas and run, you know, faster than the speed of light, you, you would have somebody who basically, um, speed of sound, sorry, flash people, um, <laughs> uh, you would have somebody who basically shoots arrows. Uh, it's sort of the Hawkeye dilemma, as uh, he's joked about, as he's joked about in the Avengers movies recently, if you just want a more recent touchstone. Uh, what do you, what do you do? You shoot arrows? Um, and so, um, so that's part of part one. In part two, called The Hard Traveling Hero, it really brings us into probably the most significant era for Green Arrow, because at this point, um, uh, writers like Bob Haney and Denny O'Neill, and especially Neil Adams in his time on Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and then um, in Brave and the Bold when he brought him back and sort of um, revised his physical look. Um, 
Green Arrow matures into somewhat of a different character. This is the Green Arrow that we probably recognize with the goatee and the, um, the uh, you know, he's always been a trick arrow kind of superhero, but um, the, the sort of proletarian champion, um, the, the liberal um, Oliver Queen, the millionaire who at some point in, this, in these runs, you know, loses his fortune but becomes um, sympathetic, the, the man on the street, the crusader. Um, <laughs> I've seen on the internet him labeled a liberal Marxist socialist, which I don't think is terribly accurate. I think he's probably more of a left libertarian, um, anti-establishment, anti-authority, uh, you know, very much a 60s hippie era um, uh, version of social consciousness, a consciousness that he tries to uh, impart on his Justice League brethren, most especially Green Lantern, who is, of course, the... Um, the uh, police state <laughs> cosmic superhero um, it's uh, if you've never seen that run I I think it's very interesting I thought of bringing in but I didn't for the sake of time the edition the absolute edition of Green Lantern Green Arrow that also came out recently um, which is a short-lived run but really revolutionary in Silver Age comics because you know from the outset of that series you basically had these two characters Green Lantern as the uh, really as sort of the the author, authoritarian state uh, <laughs> because of the blue guys from Oa <laughs> who tell all the Green Lanterns what to do to control their sector. Um, he's dealing with a criminal on the street. Uh, this, By the way, this is not in the book I'm talking about. This is not in Green Arrow Celebration of 75 Years. This is in the, um, the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, Absolute Green Lantern, Green Arrow. But here's Green Lantern. He sees somebody roughing somebody up. He, of course, decides, determines right away who the criminal and who the victim is. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the physically violent person. But as he goes to defend the person being roughed up, you know, the neighborhood comes against him because, uh, it, it, in fact, the, the quote-unquote victim here is the slumlord and the person roughing him up is the um, working class hero standing up for their rights. And um, Green Lantern intervenes as well and says, you've totally missed the point. And there's a famous line where, um, you know, a black character confronts Green Lantern and says, I see you caring about, I'm paraphrasing here, the blue skins and the, I don't know, the green skins, but what about the black skins and brown skins? Um, I think the whole run sounds basically like that to modern ears, which is quite on the nose um, and quite self-congratulatory in its liberalism. And yet for the time, uh, in an honest attempt of a whole bunch of white men to be progressive or to be liberal or to be forward thinking or to push the edges, um, you know, that... It, Take it for what it is. Um, it's important, I think, in the history of comic book superheroes confronting social issues. And that whole run, you know, deals with um, life in the, in the on the Native American reservation uh, and the experience of, um, of working class people. Um, again, very on the nose, very uh, preachy and somewhat pedantic sometimes, um, but uh, graced with Neil Adams' art. In this collection, in the 75 years, there is what was one of the most important comics of that time, which was the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series, issues 85 and 86, where Green Arrow discovers that Speedy is a junkie. Um, and that the cover, the famous cover of the two of the heroes sort of walking to the door and in the foreground, they're Speedy with his, um, you know, his uh, Coke um, equipment around his arm and stuff like that. Um, 
basically emblazoned in the history of, of American superhero comics. Um, and then the book continues on to parts three and four. Um, part three, looking at more of the, the modern age um, uh, superhero and the legacy of the Longbow Hunter. Uh, this is really when Mike Grell um, steps into the picture and um, other creators of the era have their take on Green Arrow and develops, I think, more of the darkness of, you know, Mike Grell's um, started by the long ho- le- Longbow Hunters miniseries and then in his long run, which um, which I have and I've really enjoyed, takes him out of the superhero realm and makes him really a gritty street hero. And... Um, and then in the sort of modern, uh, the contemporary times, um, starting from 2001 with Kevin Smith's retelling and Brad Meltzer's Year One, and, and uh, oh, actually, sorry, Brad Mel- Meltzer takes over as writer with um, artist Phil Hester, and then um, uh, Green Arrow Year One, written by Andy Diggle, and and art by Jock, and then some representation from the most recent. Sorry, Part Five actually has a couple of pieces from the most recent runs by Jeff Johns um, and Carlos Danda, and then um, the, the recent Jeff Lemire, um, draw, uh, art by Andrea Sorrentino. As I read it, um, and of course there's parts of it that I skipped over because I'd already read it in the past, I can't say that I'm a huge Green Arrow aficionado. Of course, these days, he's huge. Um, it's a good time. Uh, Green Arrow's everywhere because, uh, in large part, I think, because of this, the CW show. And now you have um, in that universe, in that TV universe, you got you got Arrow, you have Flash, you have Supergirl, Legends of Tomorrow. I think Green Arrow was totally the appropriate character to, in, you know, by which uh, CW would launch this attempt at creating a, you know, TV uh, DC universe. Of course, you know, we're at a time when these um, TV and movie universes, you know, with Marvel's Netflix world and then the, the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and um, what DC's trying to do now with building up towards Justice League and things like that, um, has really made superheroes uh, an outside of comics um, format, uh, an outside of comics um, meta story. And um, I think that Arrow was a perfect gamble for uh, for CW and Mark Guggenheim and, and um, I'm forgetting Greg Berlanti and folks to take. It was the right character because Green Arrow was familiar and successful enough that um, people would, you know, there was some recognition, but Arrow's always had a bit of an outsider status, and so you weren't gambling with um, the biggest chips, let's say. Uh, I don't know how gambling metaphors work. I don't gamble. Uh, you weren't gambling with the biggest stakes that, as if you were, say, starting out with um, a Batman or a Superman or a Wonder Woman. Uh, you were dealing with a character who has a history and plenty of material to mine and to work from, uh, which I <laughs> I remember when I first heard about Arrow and that there was a character named um, John Diggle, and I was just like, what, Diggle? Isn't, isn't that uh, the creator? Um, you know, is there going to be a, a character named Mike Grell <laughs> or Jim Grell or something like that? Uh, but you know, I think it was a very, um, that Diggle character, and, and now that Diggle character is in the comics, and so, you know, we have this moving back and forth between the media, but but that, that Diggle character was a reflection of the show saying, we are going to, you know, we're not going to run from the comics, we're actually going to mine the best of the comics, um, something that I think they've learned to do from 
what the uh, the you know X Men movies and the Marvel movies and the um, you know the various like um, film and TV uh, adaptations of superheroes stuff have learned to do, which is not to run from your source material, but to really draw from the best of your source material. Okay, so what is the best of your source material when it comes to Arrow? Um, I think the TV show is interesting in that it has taken some of the aspects of the sh- of the the run and I should clarify that I haven't actually watched the full four seasons of Arrow that are out there I have a, a few people close to me who are fans big fans who who've watched that show fully I've only kind of dipped into it here and there but um, what I see going on is that they're really capturing some of the aesthetic um, there's um, some of the youthfulness the the joie de vivre that um, Arrow has um, set in the context of the basic darkness of the character. Um, There's a basic darkness of the character that I think uh, has to do with his origin, has to do with trying to be gritty, trying to be street level, trying to um, not exist in the cosmic, you know, ultra super-powered world, but in the world of, um, you know, your your street criminals and in the urban landscape um, that, you know, is very sort of Gotham-like. Um, and, uh, so that's the, um, that's kind of the, the, the arrow that they've extracted from the comics. And when you look at this collection, you can see the bits and pieces that do show up. Um, uh, there's a touch of the supernatural. There's a touch of the cosmic. There's, uh, but, but primarily it's the balance of some levity and some, and some real grit and some real, um, dark reality. I think what I really want to say, and now I'm over time, but what I really want to say about Green Arrow um, has to do with the the notion, the idea, especially emerging from the 60s Green Arrow after, um, you know, the Denny O'Neill era with him. Uh, the idea that Green Arrow is the working class superhero, the conscience of the Justice League. Um, the social conscience of the Justice League, the the, the DC universe is um, liberal. Um, what's what's really interesting to read in this collection and in the various takes on the character since, including the stuff that Benjamin Percy has been doing as a writer more recently at the end of the New Fifty Two and then the rebirth and, and relaunch of Arrow, is how much Green Arrow seems to be. A, um, I'm going to come right out and, and just be very blunt, and, and this may frustrate some listeners, but um, seems to be whiteness dealing with whiteness. He is a millionaire. Uh, he's a he's a blonde-haired and blue-eyed hero. He um, uh, is cognizant of that fact often. He is doing his level best to um, to make use of his privilege in a way that um, tips the scales um, towards justice and specifically justice as as really understood under you know in a in a um, liberal or progressive and those aren't the same thing i know but in a liberal or progressive well let's call that a scale um, of understanding justice and uh, and equality uh i think green arrow represents that impulse in many ways um, in how Oliver Queen tries to deal with money, in how he tries to meet out 
um, justice and his relationship to the other superheroes sometimes um, you know curmudgeonly um, sometimes a prophet sometimes um, along for the ride I think um, d despite the problems people might have with uh, Dark Knight Returns or Frank Miller if you look at the the Oliver Queen in um, Dark Knight Returns that was a I think a really smart distillation of who the character was already and who the character would become in the sort of you know post-apocalyptic world that um, future world that Miller was imagining because Oliver Queen in Dark Knight Returns which by the way isn't represented <laughs> in this celebration of 75 years for good reason but uh, you know he's a one-armed uh, and bitter and uh, anarchist old man um, and that person exists <laughs> and they exist within American society in white American society um, this is your Noam Chomsky gadfly um, although I don't know if that comparison is, is truly fair you know this is your um, uh, Michael Harrington. Um, th this is, although again, he's a socialist, and, and I don't know if uh, I'd call Arrow a socialist so much as just general leanings in that direction. Um, I, I think what he represents is, in some ways, what um, the white American superhero would hail as the the best and most conscientious, and sometimes, as a result, the most cynical of white American culture. Now, having said that, I, you have to bracket all of that with the recognition that all along the way, he is self-conscious and referencing at all times that he is that. And sometimes he wants to make that into a hero, and sometimes the creators want to make that into a hero and want to exalt that and say, hey, look at us. Uh, hey, look how forward-thinking we are. Hey, look how aware we are of the struggles and... Um, and the uh, you know systemic problems of American society of white America, um, and yet there's always the problem of well the the, the quandaries of, of representation that really aren't solvable until you manifestly and materially open the doors for other kinds of voices. Um, the fact that milestone comes along, uh, you know a decade later from this Green Arrow, uh, the fact that um, to this day there's often, you know, disputes about representation of people of color and of, you know, of othered voices, be they queer, be they um, third world, be they, um, uh, you know, just uh, otherwise other. There's still a lot of contentiousness about those voices not only in the characters, um, but also in the creators. And it's a, I think that contentiousness, people are going to feel different ways about it who are listening to me right now. Um, I think it's really important. I think it's necessary. I think it's vital for the lifeblood of what comics are trying to do because comics have always been a medium of, of people with outsider status. But if those boundaries aren't constantly being pushed, if the access to those voices are not constantly being challenged if um, as um, Arnaldo in the book The Myth of the Superhero ha has made the case that superheroes uh, are this meta-narrative that are always pushing forward towards increasing diversity and in inclusiveness. Um, uh, another book that um, The New Mutants that I'm going to talk about, uh, a scholarly book that came out in the last year, I'm going to talk about it within a couple weeks here, similarly showing how the most powerful and 
um, palatable superhero stories have been the ones that have been on the edges of pushing the, the national cultural consciousness towards inclusiveness and diversity and um, familiarizing the strange, a phrase that I used a couple episodes ago. Um, all of that is necessary and important for comics. And that's why I can look at Green Arrow and say, here are steps and here is also evidence of the total insufficiency of those steps. And that doesn't mean we have to throw out the, the contributions, uh, nor does it mean we, we have to be satisfied with them or self-congratulatory about them. Green Arrow is Green Arrow. He marks a moment in time in the progression of a medium when um, a certain voice from the mainstream uh, resounded with a certain um, echo of, um, of, of culture and society, a certain segment of the population. And that was a not inconsequential voice. Um, at the same time, uh, <laughs> as I think most modern readers would find reading, um, say, the Green Arrow, Green Lantern run that I alluded to, there's a lot to be done. Uh, there's some distance to go and some distance that we have gone. And we'll get into some of that more tomorrow, probably. Um, thanks for listening. I'm going to have to be cutting this episode. Sound quality is a little different. I'm in the car right now, a little bit busy taking care of personal life things. But um, thanks for listening, and I, I hope that you'll rejoin and uh, keep reading. <laughs>